Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Today on Trailblazers, we welcome Australia's most decorated indoor and beach volleyball player. Representing her country for 22 years, the Triple Olympian won a bronze medal in beach volleyball at the Atlanta Games and then turned it into gold on the sands of Bondi Beach in 2000. Since retirement, she's converted the skills she learned in sport into a hugely successful career around the business of being an athlete. Kerry Pothast is in the studio. I got the eye of the Kerry Pothast, welcome to Trailblazers. How's life treating you in COVID times? Oh, don't talk about COVID. We're all pivoting, aren't we? We're pivoting. <laughs> yeah, look, it started off and I thought, oh my God, I actually have to do something here. And I'm so used to pushing myself and setting goals and being driven. And I thought, okay, what am I going to do? Okay. And I started, I, I, I started doing the whole online thing, letting all the speaking bureaus know that I was available to do online presentations. And then I just started to go, you know what, maybe this is a sign, not just for me, but for everybody to slow down. Mm. And I I feel like I've been hustling for, you know, 20 years, 25 years since I started playing beach volleyball. It's a very kind of, I guess, an entrepreneurial sport. It's very individual, but it's a team sport. You know, we have to find sponsors and things like that. So I feel like I've been hustling for a long time and now I just want to slow down and enjoy (laughs) Manly Beach. I walk across the beach or along the beach every day work out, you know, just look after myself and, and chill. What COVID has done is it's given you plenty of time to reflect on the 20th anniversary of that amazing moment when you won gold with Nat Cook on Bondi Beach. It stamped beach volleyball firmly into the Australian psyche. How clear are the memories? Interesting. So the memories are clear about the stories that I tell all the time when I'm presenting. <laughs> Those memories are so clear. But then every now and again, if Natalie and I are being interviewed together or someone recalls a story that was part of that whole journey, I'm like, oh, that's right. So the memories just keep coming back all the time. And for the 20th anniversary, I put together a, a beautiful video for Natalie of photographs to music. And when I look back at those photographs, that's when all those things started coming back. All those memories started flooding back and I'd get goosebumps and I'd get a bit teary or I'd get really excited <laughs> or I'd get annoyed. If I watch the video, sometimes I go, 
really, Kerry? Like, what are you doing? And I just, <laughs> I'm so negative and down on myself. But obviously we did well enough on that day to take it out. But yeah, the memories are definitely there. And we still love inspiring people with those memories because I learned so many lessons along mm. the way. So it's good. Well, a few years after uh, you retired, you had a baby boy that's now, what, 14, 15. Does he have any idea of how big that moment was for mum? Have, have you made him sit down and watch the gold medal match? <laughs> yeah, no, he hasn't watched it. I, I'm sure he will in the future because he's just starting to play beach volleyball. He's actually been playing for a year or so and he's pretty good at it. And I thought, why is he so good at it? And then I thought, <laughs> well, then I remembered that I've been dragging him around for the last 14 years to every single event where I've either been coaching or commentating or announcing or something. So he's been in the mix and watching the top level of our sport for so long that he's just picked it up naturally. So he's really keen on it and I'm keen to get down. I, I coach now the juniors on, on a Sunday morning at Manly Beach and I love doing that and just sort of getting sand between my toes. Unfortunately, my knees are a bit bad, so I can't kind of <laughs> rally around with him too much. It, it'll beat me up. We'll talk about those injuries uh, in a moment. Uh, just back to those the games in, in 2000. I just started my media career and I'd almost forgotten that before the party that was beach volleyball, there was a massive protest about putting that stadium on Bondi Beach and a lot of the residents thought it was going to destroy the beach permanently and there were many people really against it. How did that affect your preparation? Well, we knew that that had happened when they first announced that it was going to be at Bondi Beach and we were a little bit worried and it was just, it was part of our preparation. We were prepared for protests. Mm. We were even thinking that, you know, they might throw rotten tomatoes at us as we turned up to play <laughs> our games. Like we, we did actually have that in the back of our mind. So it was when you, when you go to something that big and when you're preparing for something that big in your life, you have to really think about every possible scenario. But as it turned out, I think it, were the, it was the Bondi residents that were trying to get tickets as soon as the, the event started because it was one of the hottest tickets of the games. And we didn't even know that that would happen. But as it was happening, we just thought, well, there's, you know, there's no protests here. Everyone's just like cheering and screaming for us. You know, it was, it was incredible. Like people were just, yeah, lifting us up. They helped us lift us up on the podium, I think, that day. It was seriously the event to be at. I remember attending it myself and I was actually working in the Darling Harbour precinct, but I had tickets to a couple of events and beach volleyball was one of them. And I remember Jerno describing it as if the Sydney Olympics were the party, then the beach volleyball was the mosh pit because <laughs> everyone was just... Just <laughs> rocking. But the weight of expectation for a home Olympics, how crushing is that? Well, again, that was something that we talked about and we, you know, we had some strategies to try and stay focused and we were actually, we weren't staying in the village at Homebush because we were playing so far away from Homebush. They actually put us up in Randwick in a nunnery, in a Catholic nunnery, believe it or not. So it was pretty quiet. Sorry, the idea of you in that nunnery just cracked me up. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty quiet, but, and the nuns, you know, they, they literally would lie in the driveway every day as we drove off. <laughs> in the bus down to the beach and waved their little flags and I'm sure they went in and prayed for us and that's why we did so well but we were kind of separated from the hype of the village and we were able to like decorate our space and we had all our motivational sayings we had all our gold stuff we brought in all the things that we'd collected that was gold I had the the national anthem on the back of the toilet door so every morning I'd wake up and I'd sing it to Nat you know to help wake her up <laughs> and to make sure I knew all the words because you know this was all part of developing the belief that this was our games and we were going to do it. So the hype, we turned it around and I, I, I talk about this a lot and I, I even, even in 
these times now with COVID, turn around the negatives and make it a positive. Like I, I talked to some athletes the other night and, and one was worried about the hype of the Olympics. And I said, well, just see it as a positive. What can we get out of it that we can turn it around and just reframe it and pick out the good bits? And that's what you focus on. So we focused on the fact that everybody was there to support us and lift us rather than feeling it like a weight on our shoulders. So mm. that's what we really learned how to do in those 18 months with our success coach leading up to the games is just you know, it would just turn around the way we perceived things, our mindset. And I believe that that was such a big deal, you know, such a big positive influence on us. Because when 10,000 people are cheering for you in the stadium and it's just rocking, like rocking, like moving, <laughs> it can be quite elate, elating. Like it's, it feels great when 10,000 people are cheering for you. But when you make a mistake and they all go, oh, together <laughs> at the same time, it's that's the weight, right? So. Yeah. In our first match, we actually felt that so much. It was like a roller coaster, up and down, up and down. And it wasn't until, you know, game by game by game, by the time we got to the gold medal, we were used to it. And, you know, Natalie was orchestrating the crowd, literally. She was standing there. I was, I had a different sort of focus. I knew every piece of sand on the court. I, I My focus is down on the ground or at Natalie or at our op- opponents. Mm. I could not look at the faces of the people in the crowd. And that's just how I played. And so we had to recognise that about each other and, and just get the, you know, find it, find the way that we would feel that as a, a positive influence rather than a negative one. Well, as you say, everyone certainly jumped on board and, and the residents were behind you. Is it true, the story that you actually had to ask one of them to pee in their bathroom afterwards? Yeah, you've heard that story. So straight after the, the final, as a, a medalist and, and after any major final in sport these days, we get drug tested. So straight after the game, you know, there's not a lot of fluid in your body after a match. You're sweating it out and you know that you have to fill this cup. So we guzzled a couple of bottles of water and then half an hour later we did our drug test. But then Channel Seven took us up into the the streets of Bondi to get us away from the crowds to do an interview, our first big live interview. And I'm standing around, and by the time we got there, this the water that I drank, you know, half an hour, an hour early, had really made its way through my system, <laughs> and I needed to, to use a bathroom. And because we're in the streets, I just looked at this lady because all the the locals had come out of the houses, and I just looked at this lady and said, "Do you have a bathroom?" She said, "Yep, live over the road." I said, "Come on, let's go," and ran over to her house, and it was that moment that I realized what a big deal it was, what it, what we had done, you know, not just for ourselves, but, you know, in Sydney, on Bondi Beach, in Australia, Olympic Games, gold medal, like huge, was when I walked out of her bathroom because she's standing right there at the door and she just looked up at me and said, I'm never going to wash my bathroom again. You know? <laughs> and she was just, you know, so stoked that I went to her toilet. It was, it's so crazy, but I just, that was when it hit me that, wow, I think we've really done something big here. <laughs> oh, it was huge. And it was an amazing day uh, for Australians because, of course, it all started with, with you and Nat uh, winning gold. I think Tatiana Grigoryova won one in the uh, Povod as well. And then there was this little race, a uh, 400 metre final with uh, someone called Kathy Freeman late, <laughs> later on. Uh, were you, did you see the race or were you two still out madly celebrating? Well, apparently Nat, and I didn't know this until recently because I heard her tell the story, Nat had a ticket for it. Yeah, believe believe it or not, I don't know what she thought she was going to be able to just straight away after we win our gold, go and watch Kathy run. But she had a ticket that she ended up giving away to somebody and we ended up having a celebration back at our accommodation in Randwick with our family and friends and we watched it on TV. But 
Nat loves to tell everybody that our medal was the 99th gold medal that Australia has ever won at the Olympic Games because we did that so Kathy would have the honour of winning the 100th gold medal for Australia. <laughs> so I think that's pretty cool. And I remember the next day we did the, the media conference and there's Kathy in the middle at the media desk. There's all the media out in front of us, you know, taking photos, you know, with all the cameras and everything. Natalie and I are on the left and Tatiana's on the right. And it was like 99 questions for Kathy, um, about maybe 10 questions for Tatiana and three for Kerry and Nat. Another 99 <laughs> for Kathy. Yeah, it kind of felt like that. It was all about Kathy. But you know what? We did not care at all. We were just so honoured to be there and sitting there, you know, and, and be part of it and be recognised. So it was pretty cool. Well, after the break, we'll go back to where it all began. We'll hear how it took a serious injury to force Kerry off the indoor court and onto the beach. You're listening to Trailblazers on 1170 SEN. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Welcome back to Trailblazers. We're talking to Kerry Pothast, who, despite being a dual Olympic medalist, in beach volleyball, didn't even take up the game until the age of 15. And Kerry, that was indoor volleyball that you didn't take up till then. How did you get into that? That kind of been your first sport. No, I played a little bit of netball. I played tennis. My, my parents were right into tennis just for fun. But I didn't really hang around with a sporty crowd at my school in South Australia. I went to Blackwood High School in the hills, the foothills of Adelaide. And I could have very easily gone down the wrong path. When I look back now, you know, <laughs> my friends weren't sporty friends. They were just mm. kind of like, yeah, let's hang around the shops type friends. So who knows what I could have got up to. But one day my brother asked me to fill in. He had this social team that he was playing in on, you know, Wednesday night or something at the rec centre. And he needed a a six player because you need to have your six on the court when the whistle blows. And he said, can you just come down and stand on the court? And when the whistle blows, just get out of the way and then we'll play the rally. So just fit like literally be the, the seat filler. I said, okay. He's my brother's older than me, had some cute friends that he was playing with. I'm, you know, okay, I'll come down. (laughs) Anyway, for whatever reason, I I just tried to play. And at the end of the game, he said, oh, maybe you'd be okay at this sport. And he said, come along to our club practice. So I went along to the club practice. And of course, all the club coaches just saw me six foot tall, skinny, just went, oh, volleyballer. Yes, we'll teach you how to play. And that's when I started playing. And again, my first motivation was, hey, there's a lot of tall guys, like literally, because Mm. already six foot tall at 15, you know, all my friends were starting to hang out with boys and things like that. And I'm like, there's no boys that even come up to my shoulder in my school. So it was kind of just a bit of a a social thing and a a community reason to begin with. And then very quickly, I picked up the skills. And then it was like, I want to be good at this. First, I wanted to be good, the best in my club team. Then I wanted to be the best in the state team. Then I wanted to be the best in the national team. And then I actually left Australia and played professionally in Italy because I wanted to get even better. I just just wanted to keep getting better. I didn't know how good I could get. And I loved the sport so much. And I was so successful at it quickly, which really helped because then it was kind of like, oh, oh, okay, okay. And get patted on the back and getting, you know, recognized again. And, and that makes you feel good. And at 15, six foot tall, I was quite self-conscious mm. and I have a funny last name, Pot Hast, and you take the H and the T and there's a big ass in the middle there. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I got, I got teased a lot in school and I'm quite sensitive. So when I was recognized for being good at volleyball, it gave me, as a, as a young female, it gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. So I always like tell people if you've got females or, you know, kids, just push them into team sports if you can. Encourage them into team sports because it's so good. It's so good for their, their confidence. Volleyball, like 
most Olympic sports, it's not kind on the hip pocket. You don't get a lot of financial support and the spoils of, of success, really. How did you make it work? Because there's a lot of travel involved in either indoor or beach volleyball. Yeah, look, in the beginning, I used all my sick pay, all my long service, or no, I didn't get long service leave, all my, my, my annual leave when I was working with Australia Post first up. And then that was indoor volleyball. And then we, we just got given whatever they could scrape together. So some years we had to give our Australian tracksuit back and then they would give it on to the next team, which I was on. So I'd get my tracksuit back again. But if you didn't make the next team, it would go to the next person who would fill your position. Wow. So that's how poor our indoor sport was. And then when I got the opportunity to play in Italy, I got paid for the first time. It was like, oh, my God, Christmas. It was. It was so incredible to be paid to play for volleyball, which even it didn't make me kind of sit back and go, oh, now I'm getting paid. It made me want to be even better. Like it was just such a, a great incentive to just go, oh, I want to be even better now. So beach, uh, indoor was was kind of, it was okay. But then when I hit beach, there was no funding and there was so much more traveling. And so that's when I started to learn the power of the media and how the media could help us with sponsorship. And I used to contact the media. I'd ring the media and say, hey, do you want to do a story on us? You know, we're down the beach and they'd go, oh, girls in bikinis, let's go do some photos. <laughs> that might get them to the, to the beach, but then we'd wow them with our, our skills. We just had to take advantage of whatever we could and, and, and really work hard with the sponsors. And then I learned how to look after the sponsors as well, you know, do speaking gigs, get on panels, be interviewed, um, take them out on the beach, play beach volleyball with them to really create a partnership with a sponsor rather than just stick a label on my, my cosy, mm. which is, is what a lot of people think sponsorship is and what sometimes it still is. But I think that partnership is really important. Well, there's not much of a cosy to stick, stick your sponsorship <laughs> onto. Uh, I remember working with you on a corporate event. It's a few years ago now. Uh, we touched on the fact that you spent a huge chunk of your life running around in, well, not very much. Um, is it my imagination or do those swimming costumes keep getting smaller? I mean, the guys, they get to play in board shorts. I know. Sort of normal kit. And, and the women, they just get skimpier and skimpier and skimpier. Well, believe it or not, it's fashion. So as the fashion changes, the beach volleyball like outfits because the girls are just training all the time on the beach. So they just go with the fashion. So at the moment, the fashion's pretty skimpy. There's not a lot at the front or the back. So, <laughs> so, so it's got nothing to do with the actual performance of the athlete. No, it's, it's all about fashion. And look, and you know, you don't have to go skimpy either as a female in our sport, as long as you match with your partner. So if you wanted to wear leggings which we do when it's cold, you could absolutely wear leggings, but as long as you match with your partner, that's really the only rules. And I don't even think on our national tour you have to have that rule, but definitely on the world tour. But there was a, there was a funny thing many years ago when the wife of the president of the International Volleyball Federation, she thought that she needed to make, or we needed to make the sport more sexy. So she decided that the, women, the side of the cozies of a, women, of a women's bathing suit, like the bottom, had to be less than 10 centimetres wide. And <laughs> 10 centimetres is quite big. Like compared to now, you could, you know, you play, could play in a string, string. bikini. But <laughs> she just put this limit on it. And then for the guys, she actually made them raise their their board shorts so it would show some leg. 
So she made it, she said, oh, like 10 or 20, 15 centimetres, whatever, above your kneecap <laughs> to the point where they had to measure the uniform. It was just ridiculous at the time. It got worldwide media attention, which was mm. probably, a, a, again, a good thing. A, a, maybe that was the strategy to get the media attention. But, yeah, that's no longer a rule that kind of came out. But, yeah, we were asked heaps of questions about that in the media. And I would just laugh and say, well, our bikinis have always been less than that. And, it doesn't bother us at all. And it just is what it is. So, yeah. And I think everything just sort of fits in. When you go down and watch beach volleyball, you know, there's music pumping. It's a really chilled uh, environment. It just looks like so much fun. It's very different to the indoor game, but you didn't choose to make that transition, did you? You had a knee blowout that, quite frankly, should have ended your career altogether. Yeah, I can. my knee hurts just thinking about it. <laughs> I came back from Italy, as I said before, I was playing professionally in Italy. I was hoping to go back for another season of indoor volleyball and I was at the national championships and we'd been playing all week. It was really quite a sticky surface. It was new flooring that they were using and because I'd come back from Italy, I was really like playing well and I was hitting really hard and so my setter was setting me lots of volleyball. So over the week I would have jumped and hit, you know, at least a thousand times I reckon. So I got to the final. I'm on the right hand side of the court. I go up to hit a ball. It gets blocked. So it's rebounding on my side. As it's rebounding, I make this decision to get it myself. So as I landed, I twisted and my foot stayed facing the, the way I landed, but my body twisted. So completely ripped out all the ligaments in my right knee. And over the next few months, I had three surgeries to try and fix the damage. And I, I developed a massive ball of scar tissue that had to be removed later as well. But I, I, after about a year of you know trying to rehab and get back to indoor, I realised that it was going to be so difficult and so painful. And I'd probably never get the same agility on the floorboards because of that. I just thought I'd try beach volleyball, given the surface is a lot softer and my foot would move with me and I could fall anyway. Like indoors, you had to kind of deep knee bend to, to fall so you don't hurt yourself on the hard floorboards. And that was hard on my knee to do that. Mm. But on the beach, I could just go plop like a pancake, you know, <laughs> on the sand. Um, so I figured this might be all right. And very quickly it was. I realised it was really easy on the knees. And because of my background of 10 years of, of good level volleyball, very quickly adapted and I'm a bit of an all-rounder as a volleyball player. I'm not that specialised. So, again, really good to adapt to beach volleyball. And I picked up my best friend as my first volleyball partner and and off we went. You certainly did. Uh, volleyball fascinates me. It's the ultimate team sport. It's the one sport you cannot win by yourself. Now, if there's six of you on a side of indoor volleyball, on the beach there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> did you find that transition tricky or was it something that just really resonated with you? I think what I liked about it was that I was in control. I think sometimes when there's six players on an indoor court, you don't, you might not see the ball for a few rallies or half a game. Like who knows how many times you're going to touch the ball. But on a beach volleyball court, you have to touch the ball every rally, pretty much every rally. Mm. So I could really control the, the game. If they were serving at me, I'd pass it and then I'd be the one hitting it away for a winner. If they were serving at my partner, then I could, you know, use my set to, to set up something. And then we, you know, it was... If you, if you lose, it's your fault. If you win, it's your fault. So it really, again, it drove me to find ways to be better and to win more and to get the most out of myself. I expected the best out of myself. And then I was probably pretty harsh on my partners. Like, <laughs> I always expected the best out of them too. I figured if they could do it once, they could do it again. And I pushed Natalie pretty hard at times. Uh, but she was tough enough to 
to put up with it. And we're we're good friends now. She's <laughs> she's forgiven me. No. <laughs> well, the partnership between Kerry Pothast and Natalie Cook saw them on the podium at the Atlanta Olympics. After the break, we'll find out how they turned bronze to gold. Stay with us on Trailblazers. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Kerry Pothast is in our Trailblazers studio. Kerry, you're paired up with Natalie Cook. Uh, you shared huge success. Were you two people that in another life would have clicked at all? How did it come about? She was this young upstart, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she'll be okay with us calling her an upstart. <laughs> She's a pretty good upstart. I actually started playing with my best friend, Annette, because she had just left the indoor national team. And Annette and I were the same age and had been around for the you know, same amount of time. And we had some really good success in the beginning. But then when I realised that the Olympics was an option and I never had the chance to go to the Olympics with indoor volleyball because they only take 12 teams from the world to compete at the Olympic Games in indoor volleyball and we were ranked 25th in the world. So our chances of ever qualifying for indoor at the Olympics was, you know, next to nothing. But on the beach, we had a big chance and Natalie was playing with another girl and I was just like, there's something about her. I, I love her like her guts and her determination. She was, she's 10 years younger than me, less experienced volleyball player, but she was already playing with a pretty experienced partner on the beach. So she was Mm. learning quickly. And I just had this feeling in my gut and I started talking about it to some of the coaches. I said, what if I play with Natalie? And they all went, oh no, don't do that. You, You don't know what that's, that's too risky. You'd wreck your relationship with Annette. You know, you don't know how good that you're going to be. And, you, you know, you're both tall players and who's going to do the defense at mm. the back. So about probably 80% of the people I spoke to said, don't switch. But I had this feeling in my gut. I really did. And I, I don't know if it's a, a female thing. Like you've, you've got to go for it. You've got to follow your gut. Because if I'd never followed it, I never would have given Annette 100% either. Because I mm. w- would have always thought, you know, what if, what if. And I figured if I followed it and I gave it everything I had and, and it didn't work out, that there were still other options. So we made the switch and poor old Annette I felt really bad because she was my best friend but I took away her chance of getting to the Olympics by by making that decision but it was a decision that I, I just it was about getting to the Olympics for me Natalie and I straight away well actually our federation even said to us we don't support you playing together yeah financially <laughs> they said if you do not finish in the top five in the next two world tour events we will not fund you so that was the pressure Lovely. we had on us. <laughs> so what did we do? We went out, we played the next World Tour, two World Tour events and we finished fifth in both of them. <laughs> <laughs> they should have said third and we would have got the, the bronze. But um, we did what we had to do. We proved that we could play together and we, in fact, both became pretty good defensive players in our own right as well, being the taller player. that Normally the shorter players roll. Yeah, we were we were. Very quickly, we gelled. We both, we just both have this grit and determination and, and want to be the best. Well, you've just underlined there how being at an Olympics is actually out of reach for a lot of even elite athletes. Tell me, when you get there, you get your green and gold kit, even if you have to give it back later, um, <laughs> you, you head off to your first Olympic village. I've had an athlete once tell me that the dining hall to them was just the ultimate freak mm. show, that in the best possible way, the fastest, strongest, tallest, shortest, fittest, the best of the best in every conceivable discipline. Tell us about your experience. Yeah, well, the first time is really the, 
eyes wide open time. You know, you're like a deer in the headlights, just checking everything out, but trying to stay focused as you can yourself. And you know, Natalie's running around getting everyone's autograph. And I had to remind her that you're an Olympian too. <laughs> like, <laughs> Take your own autograph. But I describe the dining hall as being the, the only place in the world where people from any country and every country will sit together peacefully and eat a meal, which is, you know, it's unheard of. And so it's quite fascinating for me to to kind of just see, sit in that dining hall and see all the names on the back of the tracksuits because everyone wears their, their kit in the, the village. You, you literally have to mm. and, you, and you're proud to. But just seeing all the names of these countries and I don't know if you've, you know, you've obviously watched the opening ceremony. There are countries that I've never heard of, mm. you know, random small little countries here and there and seeing those names going, wow, you know, and then sitting down at a table and you smile at people. You're not sure whether they can speak your language, but you kind of smile and you try and have a bit of a conversation. It's so cool. And then walking around the village, you see all these different athletes with their gear. So, you know, there might be a pole vaulter walking past with the pole, their pole on their, their shoulder, you know, walking down the street. <laughs> or you see, you know, well, Natalie and I, we'd be all covered in sand because our sometimes our training court is kind of near the, near the village. I remember in Atlanta and we'd be walking through the village in our bikini because it was so hot mm. with our backpack on in a bikini and in our like shoes and socks and just covered <laughs> in sand and sweat, you know? And so people must've just w- looked at us and gone, wow, what do they do? <laughs> Long jumpers or something covered in sand. Well, well it was the first uh, Olympics with beach volleyball, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. So Atlanta was just, it, that was the kind of first crack at a medal. And yeah, we can, we can say we got the first medal because the bronze women's final was the first medal final. So we actually won the first ever medal that was given out in our sport. And we had a real crack at going for the the final there, but we, we absolutely stuffed it because in our minds, we were so worried about losing, which was a complete difference between Atlanta and Sydney, our mindset. It was all our mindset because four years made a big difference to my knees. And so by the time I got to Sydney, I don't think I was really as fit as I had been. I was probably a lot smarter with my fitness. Mm. Um, but yeah, back in Atlanta, the, the difference was in our semi-final, we stuffed it because we were so worried about losing. And we were lucky to come out the next day and we, we, we actually we were inspired the night of our loss. We were so down because we had to come out the next day to go for the bronze medal. But that night, Kieran Perkins was swimming the 1,500-metre mm. final. and he was in lane. lane. Yeah, <laughs> yes. he was in lane eight and no one believed that he had any chance. And we were listening. We were watching it back in the village on a TV and no one believed he could even stay with the front mm. runners and he ended up winning it. And so that was so inspiring for us that we could go, okay, think you're written off. You can come back and you can actually win. And we had to play the Americans for the bronze medal in front of the American Mm, crowd. crowd. And everyone's yelling out USA, <laughs> USA. So it was pretty, again, it, we're so used to people cheering against us. It was, a, you know, it was just, we were in our little bubble and we did what we had to do. It rained in that game. It was humid. The other team complained about a logo I had on my hat that I'd had on the whole time. I had to turn my hat around. Such weird things happened. But we were so focused and we had our game plan and we just stuck to it. Yeah, far from losing, you won a bronze medal and you're on the podium uh, for that Olympics. But before Sydney, uh, I'm sure a number of people are aware, you guys went your separate ways. Beach volleyball partnerships are tricky, aren't they? Do, do you get to a point where it's it's like being sisters and you start bitching at each other? Oh, totally. It's <laughs> like being sisters, but I actually, it's yeah, it's more like that. But I actually say it's actually like being married because you have to live together, you have to eat together, you sleep in the same hotel rooms, you often sit together on the planes, although nowadays, well, 
towards the end, you check in separately so you didn't get to seats <laughs> next to each other. But you're, it's like being married to someone that you wouldn't choose to be married to, right? And you have to just make that marriage work. And um, Natalie and I are very different people, but the one thing that we had that no one could take away from us was the same goal and the same determination and the same grit and the same want to make it there. So it didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter how many rocks people threw at us, how many how many times, you know, things didn't go well. We just kept on moving forward, even to the point where after Atlanta, we actually got a little bit complacent and, you know, we, we didn't train as hard. We thought, oh, we're Olympic medalists now. We're really good, <laughs> as you do. And we started, to, our results started to go backwards a little bit. So we split up. I said, look, you know what? I actually want to try playing with someone else and, you know, see what happens. And so I teamed up with a girl who'd come out of the indoor national team and Natalie picked up one of the a girl junior to her that was already playing beach and we played for a year with these partners. And I did really well with my partner. We won everything in Australia. We got a silver medal on the world tour. Like on paper, we were doing really well. But, oh, my gosh, we just did not have that relationship that could, like, last. We just couldn't gel with together our personalities. So it was really quite hard on the heart to even just get out on the court together. But we tried really hard and, and, you know, I give it to both of us for actually trying hard, but it was difficult. Just personality wise, we just did not fit. And then there was an opportunity for Nat and I to team up. And I still remember the moment we got back on the court together. It was just like magic. It, it felt like magic. It just went, oh my God, I'm home. And mm. so did she. And she felt that as well. And we just dominated from then on. We were meddling at all the world tournaments and we knew that we were right in there for a chance to win gold. Well, as well as all your medals from the Myriad events and the Olympic Games, you're awarded an OAM, uh, also inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. I remember doing that interview and you'd waited a long time to be inducted because you couldn't be inducted until Nat retired. Yeah. Uh, So an extended amount of time. But athletes work long and hard to get that recognition. Where do those sorts of awards rate in your highlights reel? I think that they're, they're, they rate in retirement when you look back and go, gee, I was good back then. <laughs> at the time, you know, you don't even think about it at the time. You, you, you think about the, the ultimate winning of the next match and the next tournament and the next world champs or the next Olympics. You know, you, we lived our life in those four-year blocks because Olympics were our big events. And I didn't think ever about needing or wanting any awards during that time, but then all of those awards came in retirement. And it's just a really nice way to look back and go, yeah, I did something really amazing. And what I love to do now is talk about the lessons that I learned because sport just teaches you so much about life. And if you can get those lessons out and, and a lot of athletes retire and forget their sport, never go near their sport from the moment they leave. And I think that's kind of sad because it's like, that's just such a big part of your life. And I guess those are the athletes that struggle. Whereas I stayed involved, I started, I stayed coaching. I I was really on top of it. I'm on the board of Volleyball Australia. Um, I'm coaching again, juniors and just locally. I just, I just love our sport. I always commentate the Olympics or whatever Mm. big events are coming up. And I think that getting those awards is like just a, yeah, okay, that's good. I'm in the right place. I've, I've done a good thing here and, and hopefully mm. I can inspire people through that as well. Yeah, well, you've turned that successful sporting career into a speaking, coaching and writing empire. We'll hear more about that <laughs> after the break here on Trailblazers 1170 SEN. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 
Kerry Pothast is with us on Trailblazers. Cares after retirement. You got married, you had a baby. Was that something you saw as something that had to be a post-sporting life? Uh, as an Olympic athlete, how hard is that to maintain any sort of regular existence? Yeah, relationships do suffer most definitely when you're so focused on um, an Olympic sport. And because most athletes have to travel so much around the world, especially living in Australia, we often find ourselves away from Australia for months at a time. Mm. So, yeah, relationships suffered definitely over the years. But I I actually said towards the end of my playing career that the only thing that was going to end my playing career was was either like a knee injury that was, you know, not – that I couldn't come back from Mm. or I would have a baby. So, you know, right at the end I'm like my partner, Max – who became my husband, I'm like, are you ready? And he's like, I'm ready. So, <laughs> so I was like, come on, let's go. And so I fell pregnant within three months, which I'm very blessed to have that to have happened. Yeah. And we had our beautiful son, Tyson. So yeah, if I'd, if I'd had it any later, I would have started to go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have retired. You know, <laughs> But yeah, that, that kept me uh, occupied definitely. Well, equally, you nailed the uh, the injury level as well. Did you have six knee surgeries? Yeah, right? I had four on that bad one and then I had another two on the other knee. On because, the good one. <laughs> yeah, as soon as, the, as soon as you kind of come back, the, other, the good knee takes all the weight. So yeah, that's just something you have to live with in retirement. Most athletes are the same. Yeah, well, you've uh, kept the drive that was uh, so useful to you on the court. Uh, that attitude, the resilience, focus, pursuit of goals, they're transferable skills from being an athlete into, say, a, a career that's totally relatable uh, in a business sphere. Uh, what made you decide to apply that in a, in a corporate setting? Um, I'm not sure I actually made a decision. I think it just sort of happened gradually because as a sport, beach volleyball, as I said, it it, it is it can be very um, individual and a very separate. It was very separate back at the time from our the rest of our volleyball program because it was still new. So we were going out and finding our own sponsors and working with the media. So I just learned how to network. I learned how to um, write. I learned how to speak. Um, and, you know, you learn... I guess it's it's not really the general business skills that I learned. It was just sort of those all those outside skills. You're sort of selling yourself, so you're learning how mm. to sell um, the sponsorship in a, in a sense. Uh, and what I did learn uh, after successfully doing a lot of that was that a lot of athletes don't know how to do that. And that's why I wrote my book, um, The Business of Being an Athlete, which I wrote 10 years ago. So obviously maybe it needs an update now, but I think there are still a lot of um, foundational skills in there. And I talk about everything from how to set your goals and how to get yourself set up to, to, you know, to, to see what you want to do in life. And then all the skills from sponsorship, talking to the media, I don't know, tax, things you have to look out Mm. for, um, budgeting, table manners. I've Mm. even done, done a little (laughs) chapter on table manners. If you're sitting at a function as an athlete, you need to know what fork to use and what you know, glass to drink out yeah, of. They're and probably like more that. relevant now than ever. Back in our day, we used to have etiquette classes and things yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but the, uh, I think a lot of those skills are, are evergreen. They haven't changed, those those basic precepts. Uh, your speaking in corporate work also deals a lot with uh, conquering self-doubt and uh, the ability to conquer fear. Now, I've seen you take a group of pretty straight-laced business people and you've got them walking literally over broken glass. <laughs> Where did you come up with that idea? 
Well, that was um, something that we did as a team with our success coach, Kurik Ashley. So he introduced us to that. First, he got us to actually walk across hot coals because he used to work way back in the day with Tony Robbins. Of course. <laughs> and so he he started to go out on his own and he, he does a lot of work still. And he had the, he does the fire walks and Natalie met him in the, in the time that we were apart. So when we got back together, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to walk across hot coals. But then when he presented us with the opportunity, I'm like, okay, I love a challenge. Yeah. Did it, was really empowered by it. And then one day he pulled out this bag of broken glass and said, today we're going to do the glass. And I'm like, oh, really? And that was more frightening than the hot coals because it's real glass. And so he got us to do that. It was easy. It didn't hurt us. I understood the concept and I understood the fear and I understood how it felt when you get to the other side. It's like you look back and go, well, why was I so scared of that? It was actually easy. What else in my life am I scared of doing that once I take the first step, I'll realize that it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Mm. And so I thought I could integrate that into my corporate speaking. And so I drag a a 20 kilo bag of suitcase of glass around with me and I I get the corporates (laughs) to walk on the glass at the end. Not all of them, some of them, whoever they want. Some will not do it for the life of them. Others like want to run across it and jump on it. Like it's really interesting to see the different personalities come out. And it's interesting for them too to see how their leaders and and Mm. their workers, you know, deal with something like that. So it's it's been a really big hit at the end of my speaking gigs. Definitely. Uh, well, the idea of potentially cutting or burning your foot and then having to run around the sand doesn't appeal to me at all as a, <laughs> a, a beach volleyball idea, uh, but clearly worked for you. Uh, you now have uh, also uh, created a, a coaching environment where you're really giving back to the next generation. Uh, like some of the ladies coming through now as uh, uh, Taliqua Clancy and Maria Fay, uh, they're, they're the top Australian team, but they're in a different position now where that world domination by a Brazil or by the States doesn't exist anymore. Has, has women's beach volleyball really grown? Definitely has grown. Um, you know, when we were playing, it was Brazil and America and us mm. at the time. You know, we were the, well, the main medalists. <laughs> and then you'd get a, an odd little, you know, European team here and there would, would be on the podium. That was, you know, 20 years ago. In the last 10 years, you've seen countries like Poland, Italy, Switzerland, um, Norway. Oh, lots uh, of beaches in Switzerland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but you've seen a lot of the nations that have really good indoor players mm. switch to beach because they see how big it is and the fact that they might be able to get to the Olympics in that. Mm. And they bring their skills onto the beach, which there weren't as many back, I guess, when we were playing. And so the depth of the game has really grown. The top players are still playing at the same level, I believe. But the the depth now, like we would probably our first few matches in most world tour events were relatively easy whereas now every single game is a struggle and hard and you know you've got to get the edge pretty quickly so Maria Faye and Taliqua they're our number one Australian team I don't personally have anything to do with them they're now training in Queensland and Natalie's mentoring uh, Taliqua which is really good um, Talik was our first ever Indigenous player, which is fantastic to see her. And I, I hope that really inspires a lot of Indigenous girls to, to get out onto the beach court. But, um, and Maria Faye's from Peru, believe it or not. They're a, they're, a great, <laughs> they're a great combination, but she's lived in Sydney most of her life mm. and now is, is in Brisbane. But um, they are definitely medal contenders and they have definitely got a chance for a gold medal. And I can see how their mindset has changed over the last couple of years. They're really understanding that it's, a lot of it's about belief and they've got a great coach at the moment. And, um, yeah, I really have a lot of faith in their ability to bring another gold medal back to Australia. 
They, of course, had their chance in Tokyo delayed by a year due to COVID. What would your advice be generally to Olympic athletes who have targeted everything on this tournament? Because for a lot of them, that big publicity and that big opportunity to get in front of many eyeballs comes around but once every four years. Mm. What's your advice to them to keep them in that zone? Well, I think there's two types of athletes that have missed out of uh, missed out this year, obviously, on the Olympics. And one is the the one that was probably at the the end of their career, and will they make it? And you know, some of them are starting to retire now because mm. they they're just thinking that I'm just not going to go for another nearly a year now till Tokyo next year, if it even happens. Mm-hmm. And then the other other Olympian that actually went, well, maybe I wasn't quite ready for this year, but I'm going to be even better next year. And so that's where I think Talika and Maria Fay are. They've going to have another year under their belt, although they won't have as much competition, but nobody else will either because the, there's not the tournaments at the moment but they're going to be another year better as well, mentally stronger. So I think some have suffered, some it's a positive. I think my advice would be to those that are feeling the the stress is to, again, it's all about perception. See it as a positive, turn everything around. Say it gives me another year to work on this skill, that skill, get fitter, get stronger, you know, do what I have to do and, um, or get over an injury. And for those athletes that perhaps are at the end of their career, maybe they need to focus on, well, what's next? You know, how can I turn this into a positive Mm. in transition and in, in retirement and, you know, give themselves a, a year's grace to kind of work that out. And post COVID, what's next for you? Oh God, is there a post COVID? (laughs) It just keeps on going. Look, I I definitely want to get on stages again. I'm doing online presenting and and the occasional bit here and there, but I want to get on stages and speak. I love speaking. I love inspiring people. I love seeing it in their eyes when I I talk to them. And I'm mentoring um, a young boxer at the moment, Marissa Williamson, um, with the Sports Hall of Fame. And that's going to be exciting to to see her, her journey over the next 12 months. And, you know, whatever comes up, you know, I'm, I'm just having this time. It's long service leave, Stephanie, from um, hustling. That's what I'm on now. So whether I come back to work or not, that's another thing. It's absolutely well-deserved. An extraordinary career that continues to evolve. All the best, Kerry Pothas. Thank you so much for sharing your story on this week's Trailblazer. Thank you.